Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. The first brand you remember having an impact on you as a kid growing up in Brooklyn? It's probably Disney. Ironically, so my parents took us to Walt Disney quite a lot as kids, and I just fell in love with the sense of imagination of that place, you know, and the storytelling and, and frankly, even like Epcot more than the Magic Kingdom, the sense of the world. And it kind of opened my eyes to things, which is kind of ironic, but, but true. And it's a brand that I still really hold dear to my heart for what it does for imagination. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. Today, my guest on the CMO podcast is Thomas Ranis, vice president of global marketing at Uber, the $62 billion by market cap transportation and delivery company. Thomas joined the company about a year ago, and what a year it has been at Uber. Certainly not the one he expected before he left Google to run marketing at Uber. Thomas spent nine years at Google, most recently in charge of global hardware marketing for iconic products like Android, Pixel, and Nest. Thomas's career before Google is nothing if not eclectic. He was the first ever CMO for the state of New York, revitalizing the famous I Love New York campaign. He worked in the public sector with the San Francisco Unified School District and even had a stint in consulting with McKinsey. This is my conversation with Thomas Ranis. Welcome, Thomas, to the CMO Podcast. And we're recording on a Zoom platform, and you have the coolest background behind you. <laughs> with with Mark Hamill and Patrick, Patrick Stewart. Stewart. So tell us about that. Yeah, so it's um, we just launched this campaign in the United States called Tonight I'll Be Eating. It's, uh, it's for Uber Eats. It's actually one of these campaigns that we started in Australia uh, a number of years back, and we've slowly been taking it to more countries around the world. It, it launched recently in Mexico and Japan and just now in the United States. And it's all about bringing two sometimes odd duos together um, to uh, just kind of help people sort of celebrate the diversity of food and the selection of Uber Eats uh, and frankly, just have a little fun, which has been one of the most actually um, uh, really nice things about the response to the campaign. In addition to it's, it's showing some really great early results for the business, people are just um, finding a lot of joy in it and a lot of optimism and just frankly laughing, which is great. So it's Patrick Stewart and Mark Hamill coming together, which they frankly have never done before in any commercial way. Um, and having a bit of a duel and uh, sharing their interests in food. So it's, uh, it's the beginning of a campaign. You'll hopefully see a lot more duos coming this fall. I've seen it. I love it. Who did it for you? Was it an outside agency or inside? 
Well, it's an outside agency, really close collaboration with my in-house creative team, a group called Special Projects based in Australia, uh, who've been helping us with this concept over the last few years. Now, Thomas, you just had your one-year anniversary with Uber. Did you celebrate? <laughs> <laughs> you could imagine it was, uh, it's been an intense year. It's not been the year that I thought it would be. Um, at Uber, we actually do celebrate anniversaries. It's a big deal. Um, and so I got my bottle of champagne in the mail from my boss, which was very thoughtful, and I'll probably be enjoying that tonight. Um, but more importantly than that, my team has been um, quite, quite supportive and, and thoughtful uh, in just acknowledging the year and the accomplishment and, frankly, everything we've done together as a team, despite, you know, so, so many of the challenges that we've all faced. So, um, you know, I look back on the last year and I'm actually proud of what the team has been able to do, despite the headwinds that we've all faced. And I have found the year really invigorating in many ways. So how are you a different leader because of this year? You came in a year ago expecting a very different job and life than you've had. So what's changed about you? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, first of all, being more invigorated. I've, I, you know, I know you talk a lot about purpose. Um, and one of the reasons why I took this job is because I was really attracted to the purpose of the mission of Uber and just how it was touching people all around the world, whether changing the way people move, changing the way people work, changing the way cities function, changing the way you get food. And, you know, we've needed that more than ever at a time when people have been stuck at home. So I've been really invigorated by the purpose and the mission of the company and the role that we can play. So I think I've let myself lean into that a lot more in the last year and really try to figure out how do we connect ourselves to people and what they need right now. Um, and it's helped me fuel, I think, a lot of the work that we've done and, frankly, just energize myself and my team. Um, so that's one. I mean, I think I came into Uber with that, but it certainly has taken on a whole new level of meaning uh, yeah. and a whole new level of energy. Um, yeah. I think another is probably just being a lot more empathetic or at least trying to be. And in some ways, I like to think of my job, at least through the first few months of COVID, as trying to be the chief empathizer for the company. Like, what, and you know, what do our drivers need? What are the people who are looking to, to move need? Or frankly, how do we help cities tell people not to move, right? At a time when, um, you know, we, we all need to do our part to flatten the curve. And what does that mean for a company uh, who's a movement company? And so just trying to lean into the kind of the, the feelings of the world and sort of bringing that to the discussion a bit. Now, have you traveled? I mean, it's, you've been, you know, you've been in the job about a year, about half of that we've been under sort of lockdown. Have you managed to travel? I have not. Um, I mean, I've traveled for per personal purposes uh, by car. Um, you know, we've done our kind of weekend trips to Palm Springs, down to San Luis Obispo. I mean, frankly, we're exploring California. Uh, we went to Malibu for a couple of days. So from that standpoint, yes, more for personal reasons, obviously, and to recharge. But, but beyond that, no, not at all. Yeah. You're the second Uber marketer I've interviewed. You know, I, I interviewed Jenny Avalon in a long form interview before the pandemic, and she's the head of US and Canada. Now, what would Jenny want me to ask you about today, <laughs> Thomas? Oh man, that's a good question. Uh, I should have talked to Jenny before today. <laughs> no problem. Uh, <laughs> she would probably want to know where are we going next? Um, you know, wh where do we take this work that we've done? Where do we take the brand? You know, how do, how do we think about this next chapter? Um, which I think is definitely a question on all of our minds. Um, you know, and one of the things I've reflected on a ton over the last many months is in some ways it's gotten really hard to look too far out. The world is changing so fast. Um, and I've 
you know, kind of keep referring to the work we're doing as real-time marketing, um, where it literally is week to week. I mean, there's some days you're just pivoting on what message you think you were sending out that week and, and you know, sending out a different one because the world has just shifted again. Um, and so how, how can we look out into the future and how do we plan and get more uh, thoughtful about the work we're doing um, and be a bit less reactive? Um, I think that's the, the question my team is asking. Where do we go from here? How do we, how do we build our way out of this? You know, and, and to be really honest, marketing has been going through a transformation at Uber probably since its beginning, to be really frank. I mean, it's, you know, it's no secret that it's never really had a stable marketing function. And uh, just before COVID, I came in after a pretty major uh, change in the organizational structure and the operating model, a commitment from Dara and the top to invest in marketing, but to really scale it to the size of company that we are as a global company. And we haven't figured that out yet. And so that's a lot of the work the team is probably wondering about is, you know, how do we do that work? You know, it's got to be put on the side for the last six to seven months during COVID. And we now need to strengthen the team and renew our purpose as a marketing organization and really help drive the company into this recovery phase. Yeah. Now you just mentioned, you know, how you're working differently now. You're making decisions very quickly. How are you organized now to work in this environment versus how you were before? I mean, are you... Are you meeting more frequently? Are you, uh, are your, is your planning different? Uh, are you, have you bringing different people into it? So give us a sense of how you're organized to pivot as quickly as you have, because you have, you're doing some remarkable things in a short period of time. Yeah, you know, I think, I think we're in the, ne the next phase, though. I think there was the first phase, which I'm sure everyone went through, of the crisis and the immediate response. We actually had the pre-phase. I mean, one of the things that's really exceptional about Uber is, while it's a tech company and a tech platform and one, on one hand, it's also an intensely operational business. And it's, it's, it's definitely the strength of the company. And it's a company that's been weathered by a lot of crises and a lot of change. And it's created a muscle around how do you respond to crisis? How do you respond to adversity? How do you use your operational prowess to really kind of get through situations? We actually came together in February for three days, so Dara had an, a global leadership offsite that was planned. He canceled it. He said, I want 40 cross-functional leaders to come together, spend three days thinking about this pandemic that might occur. Um, and how do we respond? How, you know, what are the different scenarios that might occur? How do we sort of play those out? What, you know, and so we, we did that in February. And so we went into the thick of it with a, with a lot of planning, a lot of togetherness, and daily meetings for an hour or two hours with these 40 folks making hard decisions, debating the tough topics um, and figuring out how to how to really respond quickly. Um, so that was like phase one. And my team was doing the same thing. I mean, we were meeting daily. It was over communication. It was uh, really thinking about who was doing what, how do you connect the dots and just how do you make quick decisions, take some risks and move. Um, I think it was quite energizing. It was obviously quite taxing as well. And I think we now need to go through a phase of of recovery from that and some recharging. That was probably the second phase. And now I think we're actually in the third phase, which is, you know, how do we get more organized and, and get ahead of things? Probably to Jenny Avalon's question, if she was to ask me it. Um, and so now I think it's a little different. It's about how do you delegate? How do you identify clear owners for initiatives? And how do you let the teams run? So this campaign that's behind me, um, you know, I, I signed off on it at the highest level, but the team has just run with it, right? And they're, they're doing shoots by Zoom with actors in other places of the world and just kind of making that happen. And so I think we're now in a phase of really just trying to define what are our key priorities? How do we have fewer priorities? I think that's a big part of this phase of work. We've got way too many things to do with a very taxed and stressed entire team. Uh, and how do you empower people to just run with stuff so that we can get, get things going?
Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit more about what you're doing now because you, you know, your business obviously was hit hard, harder than most, frankly, in this pandemic. But you're doing, you're helping people in so many ways. And I'm just speaking as a consumer here, as a person, you know, free rides for people in fire ravaged zones, delivering food to first responders, helping local restaurants, extra care for your drivers, ad campaigns about mask wearing, help on election day, and on and on. So, why these choices? Did your purpose guide you? You know, what, what, give us some insight about you know, why you're doing what you're doing and how you feel about it? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, this is, this is the work that I think has excited me the most and frankly, why I joined the company. You know, we're a brand that shows up in people's lives every single day in 60 countries around the world. You know, whether it's to help you get to work, run an errand, frankly, earn a living. Um, you know, it's, it's, it was really obvious in those early days, particularly as every city, not just country, every city was trying to figure out what to do, that we had a role to play. And one of the things I talked about really on in some of those planning meetings in February is I think this is actually a moment for us to show our values, to, to take a leadership position. I mean, these are the moments when you should show people what we're really about. And if people have this misconception about us based on our past, right, and the fact that we've done a lot to really change um, and kind of come to terms with who we are, this is the time to show people that and to take a stand and and really play a role in addressing some of the issues that we're facing. So I kind of started talking about citizen leadership, right? I think we're in an age where people don't trust government. Um, that we know has been an on, on, on a decline for decades, frankly, and brands are stepping up to play more meaningful roles. And I think we have to figure out how to lean into that. And so that was a lot of how we started to think about those early days of just communicating information, which was one of the first things we had to do and making sure that the information that cities and health authorities were putting out was communicated to people who were trying to ride and move. And this whole idea, again, of like we're in a world of where movement is, is coming to a halt and we're a movement brand. Like, what does that mean for our responsibility? How do we stay relevant to people? What role can we play? And so it's one of the things that I'm most excited about now because I saw Dara's leadership through this and his willingness to be bold and take risks. And when I went to him very initially in that phase and said, I want to put an ad out that says, don't move. We want to tell people not to use our product. You know, he definitely paused. <laughs> He's like, you already give you money to put that on television? I was like, yeah, because this is the time to help. This is the time to show people what role we play in their lives. And even if they're not going to ride with us right now, we have a responsibility to help them stay home and move what matters. So let's help people who are stuck at home get free meals. Let's help people who are healthcare workers or essential get to their jobs. Let's make sure we're doing both of those things. So it became a framework, this idea of citizen leadership and really move what matters to guide us through all the things that you just listed. Um, we kicked off our first social impact strategy, I, I, that which now reports to me as well. I was very fortunate to bring in a, a leader, an exceptional woman named Julia Page, who just joined before COVID. So she was thrown into the thick of things uh, to figure out how we can organize and how do we really show up in a, in a way that's helpful for every city around the world and in its own way. Is your brand stronger now than it was before COVID? It's a great question. Um, you know, it's one of those things that I, I believe is stronger. We're starting to see the data that suggests people have responded quite favorably um, to, to these actions. Um, people were surprised by, by how we showed up. I think we brought more humanity and empathy than I think they might typically associate with Uber. 
Um, and I think, again, we did a lot of the right things. It never felt like enough, if I'm really honest. I think we've always struggled with that, like couldn't get masks to drivers fast enough, you know, couldn't get enough masks and PPE supplies as obviously there were constraints around the world. Um, so it never really felt like enough, but I do feel like it's starting to break through. I think the employees at the company have felt uh, more invigorated by this sense of purpose in the way we showed up. But, you know, this this work takes time to really stick. Uh, and frankly, we have a lot of work to do to continue to prove to people this is who we are and this is what we really are committed to. We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. The CEO-CMO relationship is such a critical one, and some, some CMOs don't get that right, and some do. You've mentioned Dara's name three or four times already in this podcast, and he, of course, is your CEO. What have you done with Dara in these times of you know great stress, you know, to build a relationship, to get on the same page, to do the remarkable things you are doing for the brand. Dara is an incredible leader. I mean, he's definitely one of the reasons why I joined, joined Uber. Um, he's first of all, just, he's just human. He's accessible. Uh, he's, he's straightforward. Um, and so through all of this, I might remember even just early one-on-ones during the first weeks of COVID and just, just talking about what was going on in the world, observations, speculation, <laughs> theories, what's going to happen, but just being able to connect on that level. Um, but the other thing about Dara, he's an incredibly, um, he's an incredible manager. He's very, um, he's very disciplined. Uh, he, he likes to take risks and empower people. And so you can have these conversations, throw these ideas at him, and he's very quick to make decisions and sort of then trust you and run. He'll ask a bunch of questions for sure. <laughs> He'll want to see the results and know like whether it worked or not. Um, but, but he's willing to then kind of trust you. Um, and so that's, you know, and, I, and frankly, I think this pandemic has kind of forged the relationship, not just me with Dara, but my team with me, with the company in a way that I think has accelerated things that never would have happened had we not been in the situation. So in that sense, I feel lucky to have someone who has really been a leader for, for us through this and is continuing to push us to do bold things and to do the right thing. We talked up front that this is, you've just had your champagne bottle, your one-year anniversary at Uber, and you're in a, a global marketing role. And we're going to talk about that. That's not an easy thing. I was in the same kind of role at P&G once. I was promoted from inside the company. You came from outside, which has its own set of you know, challenges. So I want you to talk about your remit when you were hired. What were you brought in to do? And how has that shifted? And where are you focused now? Really, really focused. You talked about priorities, the need to have fewer of them. So if you may, what are those? right now? Yeah, um, it's a great question. Uh, you know, I think the, the, the words that stick out for me most when I interviewed with Dara coming in was to help turn around the brand. 
you know, when I joined because I had this belief for, for my interviews with him and, and all the senior execs that this was a new error for the company uh, and that Dara had done a lot to sort of um, address some of the issues of the past and was beginning to build this path to the future. And I was really excited about that, to be part of that and to help kind of put my, my mark on that in any way that I could. And so turn around the brand, it kind of become the thing that I, I believed I was here to help do and help people see this vision that Dara has and this belief in the right thing and how Uber continues to innovate in people's lives in more and more ways as a mobility platform, right? More than just rides and more than just UberX as a delivery platform, more than just Uber Eats now as we expand into more and more ways to help people get things at home. Um, and then there's so many other things that we do from freight to, um, to um, ATG and everything else. So that was kind of the, the mission. I actually think the last year has helped me kind of see that mission more clearly in some ways. And I don't think in many ways the priorities didn't change, just kind of the definition of those priorities or how we execute those priorities changed. And a great example of that is safety. Um, we were always committed to safety. It was one of the things we've doubled down on for the last number of years. Just last fall, we issued a safety report in the United States. We were very transparent about sexual assaults and and such that were happening on our platform and all the things we were doing to commit to address that through our technology and, and our partnerships with the community. So safety was, is, is and will remain a, a, a top priority for us as a, as a brand and as a company. But safety has been completely redefined <laughs> in the last seven months. I mean, who would have thought we were going to talk about health safety, right? And masks and PPE. I mean, these, these words that now are so common that seven months ago would have been so foreign. Um, and so focusing on those things, those, those priorities have continued to stick. So I just think we're thinking about them differently. So fast forward now to where we are today. Um, I think about our priorities as reconsideration. As a marketer, I think about our priorities as reconsideration. Um, we're a brand that is ubiquitous, that people think they know, uh, that people experience, you know, almost on a daily basis, or at least they did. Uh, and we hope they will again soon. Um, but how do you get them to reconsider um, who we are? How do you get them to reconsider um, our values and our commitment and, and the integrity of our company, which I think has changed a lot? How do you get them to reconsider the role we play in their lives as a product and service? Um, I think that was true before COVID. It's even more true now as people have not been riding in the same way or want to move differently. How do you get them to reconsider how they use us as a platform as we move differently into the future? How do we reimagine our products to help you move differently? Right? How do you reconsider that we're actually now a food delivery brand as well and we can bring things to your home and we keep small businesses running by helping connect what they do to, to what you need? So I think reconsideration becomes this. How do we reconsider rides and get people back moving again? How do we reconsider the delivery category and play a meaningful life there, uh, role there? And then how do we reconsider the ways we show up for the community um, and build on some of the things that we started to do during COVID and double down on safety and really think about sustainability, right? As we come into a world now that's had a chance to take a deep breath um, by reducing movement and pollution and what role do we play in continuing along that path, right? Um, and how do we recommit um, to some of the other issues around social justice that I think also, and, and uh, economic mobility, which are huge elements of the people who work on our platform. Now, before COVID, your brand was, you know, locked in one of the all-time great differentiation battles with Lyft, right? We have a lot of great historical brand different, Coke, Pepsi, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, I was involved in many of them at P&G. Do you feel like over the last year you've differentiated yourselves more versus Lyft? I do. Um, you know, I, I think we've 
helps people see how our products and services can be helpful to them in this in this world that we've been in. Um, the fact that we're a global brand, first of all, and so we're able to actually have impact on a global scale, very different from Lyft. Um, we're a platform for mobility and delivery. Uh, and we've been able, in many ways, very fortunate from a business model standpoint to pivot to our Eats business, which has, which is now, we've publicly said, bigger than our rides business, right? And so in a short period of time, we've been able to grow the Eats business to what the rides business was. Um, and so we have much more to offer people in the role that we can play in their lives as, as the world is changing around us. And then I think we've really leaned into our values and to Dara's belief that we need to do the right thing and, and, and use the, the power of our platform, right, in a way that I think can, can create good in the world. Um, and I think that's really important. It has to be germane to what we are as a brand and kind of what we can uniquely do as Uber. And it wasn't about donations. It wasn't about just, you know, quote unquote, charitable contributions. It was about how do we move people? How do we move people who are in need, whether that's bringing food to their homes or getting people to hospitals who, who needed to, to work or other essential workers to their jobs? So and I think we've showed people that um, we have a heart around those those issues and we're willing to commit to them, even when our economics, frankly, are still challenged, right? We're not yet a profitable company, and yet we made a very significant uh, commitment to 10 million rides and deliveries in the height of the, the crisis um, because we, we knew it was the right thing to do. I mean, you're talking about really brand purpose here and brand purpose in action and, and, and you know, making you know, the values of your company, you know, putting them into action. Any tips or advice or lessons from that over the last year? You know, you're, you're a large company. You have lots of people in your system. And how were you able to get everyone activating all these amazing things you've done, bringing your purpose to life, right? It's easy to talk about purpose, easy to do an ad about purpose, a lot harder for everyone to feel it's their own and behave accordingly. So any insights on that over the last year, Thomas? Mm. Well, I, I think it comes back to your question on Dara. I think it starts at the top, certainly in, in creating an environment um, where that is seen as important to the, the company. And I, I believe that that starts with him and, and he's been a, a, a great example of that. Um, I think it comes in part to defining a strategy. I mean, we, we did that early on as well in thinking about, you know, there are a million things we could have done. I and mean, there were a million asks of us in those first few weeks and really thinking about, well, what's what's unique to Uber? What can we do that that others can't do as well? Um, and how do we leverage those assets in a unique way? And so defining that strategy, which very quickly became about movement and movement of food and leaning into that, um, but not being too precious either, to be honest. There are times when, you know, a country might need something else and we should be there for that country, whether it's because the government asked us or a community need arose and, and we can help help solve it. So not being too precious about the strategy. <laughs> I think that's important, too. Right. I mean, you've got to be able to be human and, and, and real time about this. Um, but then I think it just comes down to the values and the culture of, of the people. And one of the things that's been maybe not surprising is one of the reasons why I joined the company, but so reassuring in the last year is just seeing how much the people and the leadership in particular have shared values around this and are looking to do the right thing and, and looking to have the hard conversations and you know have the right debates and, and make the right trade-offs, but really have their heart in the right place. And that's one of the things as a marketer, frankly, I feel like some of my job is to help people see that about us. Like we are so committed to safety and so conscientious about the data and the technology and how it works 
Like how do, how do we help people see that part of us, the humans that are behind the platform and the algorithms that are, are trying to make Uber you know, the, the brand that I think we want to be? What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. Thomas, let's talk about your last job. And you were in a global job at Google. You know, you oversaw hardware marketing. Uh, there's been a lot of new announcements from Google recently in the hardware business, new products and services and so on. Could you share how that experience in that global job at Google helped you get a fast start at this new company you came to, Uber? You came in at a high level. That's never easy. You came in and it's a very dynamic company. So how did that Google experience in a global marketing job help you get a fast start at Uber? Man, this is one way to reflect on the last year. Thank you, Jim. Um, uh, it's a good question. I um, So yeah, I was at Google for a decade. It was an incredible, incredible decade. Um, I joined when Lorraine was was uh, recently hired to, or at least brought, brought from Europe to lead and build this global marketing function. I was on her leadership team for, for 10 years and all of my roles were startup roles. I think that's that's one thing that prepared me for this. I was the first head of strategy and operations for her, uh, essentially her chief of staff and uh, right hand in helping to architect a lot of the organization in those early days. And, and I was the first person hired into that role. I was then asked to build the brand studio, um, which brought together a number of functions across the organization to, to really, for the first time, build a, a central organization driven around brand. Um, so as a founder of that, and then I actually joined the hardware business before there was a hardware business, before they organized around hardware. I started in the Android space, but really with the intention of launching the first truly Google branded phone and, um, you know, was the founding uh, head of marketer for that. So I think that's one of the things that really prepared me for coming into this is, and one of the things that, that I think I love doing, I love starting things. I like building things. I like fixing things. Uh, and I knew there was going to be a lot of that in this job. And so uh, being able to run at things that are pretty messy and ambiguous, perhaps not defined or ha hadn't been done before, is kind of one of the things that I, I really kind of get excited about. So that helped me a ton. I think the other thing is just being in a tech company and bringing that perspective to Uber, right? The fast-paced quality of things. Um, while I believe the company is very committed to the brand, there's not a lot of preciousness around spending months and months trying to define the brand. It's sort of like you do these things by the actions you take and you start to kind of shape the, the sculpture through over time by the, the motions that you go through, right? Versus like having the, the whole thing thought out ahead of time. So um, I, I think I brought that kind of mindset as well. Um, you know, and, I, and I, I think at the same time, the other thing I'd say is, you know, Google is one of these brands that's a ubiquitous brand that's also a verb, so is Uber. Um, and it's one of these things that Google is very functional and very utilitarian. I think the thing that, you know, we had done over the last decade or so under Lorraine's leadership has brought a lot of emotion, humanity to what is a search bar. Uh, and so that same idea of how do you bring that humanity into a function, right? That's very utilitarian um, and, and frankly powered by humans, but we don't necessarily celebrate that as much. And so how do you lean into that part of being a tech brand? This Google brand studio you referred to is an interesting concept. Are there elements or principles from that that you'll apply at Uber? And maybe for our listeners, 
share a little bit what the Google Brand Studio is, because I think it's a really neat concept. And I've seen it in action, and I think it's very powerful. Yeah, so the Brand Studio was there to really help define the Google brand. Um, and it had a number of pillars from you know strategy, kind of which essentially took on a lot of the uh, naming and architecture and expression and positioning of the brands, um, to um, uh, digital, right? Thinking about kind of the ways that the brand shows up through its digital properties and own channels, if you want to call them that, um, to media, right? And uh, initially, anyway, the Media Lab was part of the brand studio. So how does it show up in the world and kind of creating a center of excellence for media and innovation through media, which obviously as a, I mean, Google itself is a media brand in many ways, uh, to creativity, to creative. And like, how do you think about the, the creative expression uh, for the core brand. So partnering a lot with the Creative Lab, but really thinking about the expression and the the definition of, of the Google brand and how it shows up across all these channels. So I, I definitely want to bring some of that as well to Uber. And so I hired a creative director in the middle of COVID, actually a woman who I've never met in person. So let's talk about that. Like I hired this woman, we, we hired her by Zoom. She started by Zoom. She continues to work by Zoom up in Seattle. Uh, Danielle Hawley is an incredible talent. And so she's come into the team to help us start to shape this creative vision and help us define our brand and build uh, the right in-house muscle. Uh, I hired a guy named Travis Freeman who is running media. So we're building a similar media team. So, you know, I think like a lot of brands, thinking about how do you build these functions in-house to get more scale and efficiency, but really how do you do great work by having that talent close close to the heart of the company? And what I think really matters, and I think this was something we, we really worked on at Google as well, is working closely with the product teams, right? Because as you know, I mean, the brand is not what marketing does. The brand is how the product shows up in the world and every way that, that the corporation shows up, frankly. And so how do we stay close to those things and be partners and influencers in shaping that, which I think is ultimately the most important thing. Do you think more brands in more industries should have their own brand studios? I mean, the CPG brands, the, the retail brands, the automotive brands. I kind of think so, actually. I think so. So, I mean, maybe my agency partners won't like me for saying I think so. I think there's still a role for the agency partner, though. I think, you know, there's the, the incredible perspective you get from an agency who can look at you from the outside in and reflect on the world and help you kind of see things you just can't see when you're kind of caught in the bubble. But at the same time, an internal creative team could get to know the brand and the DNA of the company and the business challenges. And frankly, that DNA that you just can't really get your fingers on unless you're inside in a way that no one else can. And I think that's how you can do your best work. It's also how you move fast to do your best work and why I think the team was able to do that over the last many months. It's that deep, really intimate understanding of Uber. Yeah. Let's flip back earlier to your career. You, you've been, a, you know, this is so interesting. You've been associated with a host of organizations that w- many would regard as the smartest organizations in the world, right? You, you spent time at Stanford, Harvard, McKinsey, Interbrand, a leader in research and brand valuation, and Google. So I want you to talk about, in a very brief way, <laughs> each of those organizations and what makes them so special, so smart, if you will, with such a strong, I would say, unique reputation. So let's, let's start with Harvard. Yeah. So I have to give context to this first, which is just on a personal note, because we don't know each other very well, which is I grew up in a family where I was the first to go to college. Um, and so just to even have all these names on my quote unquote resume to me is a bit foreign still when I look at that, because, you know, I grew up with a dad who um, owned a, a pasta shop in a deli and a mom who was a secretary. And so 
just the fact that I was able to go to Stanford and Harvard, frankly, I feel very fortunate to have done it. And just feel still a bit of an out-of-body experience to have you list brands like that because you know, I don't I don't necessarily associate myself with them, but I've gone through all those experiences. So I just want to share that because it's definitely really important to me and, um, and just kind of a perspective on who I am. But, um, you know, Harvard, I mean, I went to Harvard and I chose to go to policy school at Harvard, not to get an MBA because I didn't think business school sounded like a whole lot of fun. Um, although I wanted business experience, which kind of brings to make, us to McKinsey eventually. Um, but I went there because I had a real passion for government and for policy and for democracy, <laughs> something mm-hmm. that is quite relevant right now, um, and was an incredible experience because the policy school there is a confluence of ideas and people and perspectives from around the world. And literally every day you have Desmond Tutu for lunch in this room and Mario Cuomo in that room and the president of you know this country in the other room. And it's just such an incredible place for ideas um, and values and ideals. So it was it was a remarkable experience and one of the best things I've ever done. Um, Stanford, I mean Stanford. So again, like grow, grow, kid growing up in Brooklyn, um, I uh, when I got into Stanford, my family kept asking me if I was moving to Connecticut. Um, but I had, to, <laughs> I had to correct them. That's good. That's good. <laughs> Um, you know, like I hadn't actually never heard of Stanford when I applied. Um, I knew I wanted to go to California. I had this, this idealism being a New Yorker in the seventies and eighties that like California was a sunshine land and it would be a place of great people and clean water and no graffiti on the streets and just, just seemed like this like utopia. So I was like, I just want to go to California. And I opened up U.S. News and World Report and I was like, oh, there's a college at the top of the list in California called Stanford. So I applied. Um, and I was told, by the way, I'll never get into Berkeley or UCLA because I'm out of I'm out of stater, so don't bother. So I applied to Stanford, and I was very lucky to get in. I don't know how. Um, Stanford was a tough place for a kid from Brooklyn <laughs> mm-hmm. with the background that I had. I can't say I, I took to it immediately. It was definitely a bit of a challenge, but I learned a ton. I learned to write. Um, I learned to think. Um, I took a year at Oxford when I was at Stanford. I learned to really push myself. Um, so it really taught me a ton about some of the basics of just critical thinking and some of the skills you need to, to, to survive. And you studied, your major at Stanford was? Political science. So mm-hmm. I was a kid who wanted to be an actor. Uh, in fact, the other option was to go to NYU's um, Tisch School of the Arts, which where, where I was admitted. I didn't want to live at home. So that made that decision very easy. And frankly, I had parents who wanted me to do more than be an actor. As you can imagine, the pressure as the first kid to go to college was, you know, you need to do something more serious and more real than that. Um, and so I wanted to study theater at Stanford, and I did do a lot of drama. Um, in fact, I wrote my thesis on political theater and bringing together politics and the arts. Um, but yeah, poly- political science, I was turned on by a professor my first quarter at Stanford who was a Marxist who just kind of blew my mind on some of the ways you might think about um, you know, organizing political systems and sort of values and just really challenged my thinking. Wow. Now flip into the corporate environment. You had McKinsey, Interbrand, and Google. We talked a bit about Google. What about McKinsey? What makes them so special to differentiate it in their industry? So McKinsey was a left turn after going to policy school, or I thought I really needed business experience. I thought this was, um, you know, in the late 90s, where actually a lot of my friends in the nonprofit sector were looking to the business sector for leadership experience to bring to the nonprofit and, and public sectors. And so I thought that would be just really helpful for me in my career as a, as a potential public policy leader. Um, and so I, th- I went thinking I'd stay two years, I stayed five and ended up in financial services, which was quite different than anything I had done. But the thing I took most from McKinsey 
is this idea that you can solve any problem if you break it down into its pieces. And I think that's helpful. I mean, it's helpful anything you have to confront, however big or small, can become a whole lot less daunting if you just think about kind of just, just tackle it one bit at a time. Um, and there's this audacity at McKinsey that they can solve anything, you know, and you can call it arrogance, but it's actually an incredible and, and inspiring audacity of how to take on problem solving, um, which is a hallmark of McKinsey and something that really helped, has helped me since. Now, I want you to talk about interbrand and, you know, a lot of our listeners may not know what that is. And so I think we should give some background on it. I mean, it's, it's a consulting group. It's a research platform and you can probably explain it better than I can, but I, I have to share one personal perspective. They're famous for their valuation of global brands and you worked in that space. And every time, and that comes out in Bloomberg Business Week, when you do the research and, and you published it, every year when I was CMO at P&G, I got called in to say, why weren't more of our brands in the top 50? What's going on here? What is their methodology? Do you trust it? So it raised a lot of interesting questions for me at P&G when I was CMO, and obviously they have so many brands. So tell us about that experience of getting so deeply into valuing brands, how that affects how you approach your job now as a practitioner of building brands, which you did at Google and you're now doing at Uber. Yeah, it's a great question. And uh, just from a personal note, I went to Interbrand because I had a mentor at McKinsey named Gary Singer, who's now a very good friend of mine, um, who, who brought me to Interbrand. He, he recruited me there to help lead the brand valuation, what we were calling kind of business strategy practice. Um, and so I very much both followed my heart and, and uh, a person into that role. And one of the best decisions I made, it was a training ground for branding for me. Uh, especially coming after coming from policy background, and then McKinsey, it was a just great kind of uh, very quick boot camp on branding and brand valuation. Kind of gets to the heart of it, like what are brands and why are they important to businesses? Like why do we invest in these things, right? And um, it's all about intangible value, right? How do you create something that's just bigger than the sum of its parts? Um, and what I love about um, the definition of brand value, and I in fact used this just this week with Dara and some of his leadership team, is. There's two parts of it. There's what it does in the immediate sense, which is usually creating some sort of premium for the product that, that you're selling. And it's what it does in the future sense, right? The kind of discounted cash flows that come from a brand, this preference that you create that keeps people coming back, ideally at a lower cost of sale. And those are the two things that drive a brand. And they should be intangible in that they're bigger than just the functional attributes on paper. Um, there's an emotional element to them, though they obviously have to be grounded in the experience that, that you offer. And so if you could think about how do you optimize those two things, right? And for Uber, what is that? Which app are you going to open first? That's the current sense, right? And then the future sense is like, am I only going to single app? Am I only going to open Uber? Am I willing to kind of commit to a, perhaps a subscription program for Uber to have it in my life? Like, how do you think about that long-term value and how do you really connect to users to, to activate both? Were there any super surprising lessons from your time at Interbrand when you studied so many different categories, companies, brands? Is there anything that pops out that was like an aha for you? I'm not sure I'm going to have a good one on this, this yeah. one, Jim. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. Good question. Um, you know, I, I think it's, I think if I had, if there's one aha from all of it is that branding's not just a science. I mean, it's so obvious and you know it, but as much as brand valuation is attempting to put very rigorous 
and analytics and financials on a brand and the value it drives for the company. I mean, it's still an art in so many ways, even that was full of assumptions and there's an art to that modeling. You know? And I think at the end of the day, that's, that's why I love branding and marketing is that head and heart is that right, right side, left side of your brain. Like the fact that you can bring strategy and numbers and measurement with a sense of emotion and theater and storytelling. And it's really that formula that brands get right. And it's, it's, it's not, you know, it's, it's not a, it's not a recipe. Yeah. Now the last one you've, you've, we've spoken about Google already, but I just like to hit it quickly here. You know, if you take, you were there a decade, which was a, a remarkable decade for Google, you know, what about Google that makes it unique? So special. That yeah, that's already, a great question. You know, most people I think would assume they know, but what, what, what do you feel it is? I think it's similar to what I said about Uber. Obviously, it's a different place and different brand, but it's, it's the values and the spirit of the company. You know, I was lucky enough to join at a time when the company was roughly 20,000 people. You know, it's over 120,000 now. I was lucky enough to join at a time where literally day six at Google, I was in a meeting with Larry and Sergey on a topic Lorraine said I didn't have to think about for months and was quickly thrown into and in a discussion. I was you know, in, in the room working with Larry on a lot of the renaming of the company. And so the values that that company exists on came from Larry and Sergey and their vision for the world and the sense of who they are, their sense of curiosity and, and, and wonderment about how do you solve problems and how do you use information to, to, you know, to uh, change the world, to, to give people access to information, to, to make this a, a, a more fair and democratic place. Um, I think that's the spirit of, of Google that is through and through that company and, and Google hires for that. Their, their leaders all kind of embody that all the way up to, to Sundar now. Um, I know that's what makes that place special is the culture of the people, the values and that history and sense of mission that really came from Larry and Sergey and I think really infused Google. Uh, it's amazing. There are now 120,000 people and they've kept that spirit at that scale. I know it, it's a bigger place. It's a little bit more bureaucratic. I get all that, but still, you know, they are pretty remarkably innovative. They are still bringing amazing talent into the company. It's still very dynamic. Agree, agree, and it's true. And I kept saying that, you know, uh, even to my last day there, it's incredible they can still hire for that and maintain that. And you feel like everyone still has that same commitment and belief. Um, it really does make the place pretty special. Now, Thomas, I want to move into our lightning round and get to know you better as a, as a person and as a leader. And the first question is, now you were CMO of New York State for three years. Wow. Who was the most <laughs> important person or most interesting person, not important, that you met in that job? Oh, one of the best things about that job, actually, was that I was also the, the I oversaw the, the state's office for tax credits for film and television. And so I got to go to many premieres of films that received benefits from New York State. And so that was actually one of the one of the more glamorous and fun parts of the job. And I mean, the most incredible moment I will never forget. In fact, I didn't I didn't actually dry clean my suit for quite a while afterwards is when I met Meryl Streep. Um, it was 30 seconds. But Still. that woman has the, the ability to connect with the human in front of her in such a deep and personal way that I was just so moved. So that was probably the best moment of those many years. It was a job that was a fantasy job as a New Yorker, a kid from Brooklyn who had done business and branding. Like it was just, and Elliot Spitzer and the governor and his wife really believed in the power of the, of the brand of the state 
and how to use it to drive economic development upstate, really turn around the image of, 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 the, of, the, of, of the place, um, but obviously went in a very different direction. <laughs> Best part of growing up in Brooklyn? Uh, the grit. Um, you know, there's just a, I grew up in Brooklyn before Brooklyn was hipster and cool. My mother grew up in Williamsburg before there was a, uh, a BQE and before it, it, you know, many decades before it became what it is today. I lived there before it, the gentrification and redevelopment of the last phase. Um, but the grit, the sense of like community and determination, just pick yourself up and kind of keep going. That's, that's definitely one of the things I took from Brooklyn. What's your favorite new habit during COVID, if you have one? It's a good question. Um, I, I think it's probably two. They're, they're small things, um, and they're not tech-driven. They're more human. Uh, if anything, it's helped me embrace that more. Um, one is just walking our dog religiously every day and, and taking him to Dolores Park, which is pretty close to where we live in San Francisco, and spending whether 15 minutes to 45 minutes every morning you know, chucking the ball and just not having your work phone on you and talking to some of the other dog dog owners. That's been really awesome to just stay grounded and feel connected to a community and a place at a time where we're all stuck at home. And then the other is just having meals with my partner. You know, we, we try to have lunch together every day. We usually text each other, what time are you free? Um, but we also sit down to dinner and, you know, we sit down at the dining room now. We never used the dining room before COVID. We always ate at the kitchen counter, right? Now we sit in the dining room. We put out the placemats and we have, we have a meal and we stop and we put the phones away. And that's been really, really nice. No, they're not small. Those are, that's, I think that's everything. And, you know, uh, I'm doing many of the same kinds of things myself during COVID. And it's, uh, it's been kind of renewing in many ways. Agreed. What are you What are you watching or listening to or reading <laughs> that's had an impact on you these days? I was worried you'd ask me this question because I'm not a I'm not a I don't read a ton unless I have time off. Um, I mean, there are a ton of like short things, but but I have a TV addiction. <laughs> uh, we watch the news far too much, which is probably not good for our health. But we also love um, we love uh, television. So we kind of went on a phase of we we discovered Schitt's Creek a bit late, which was just a real gift. <laughs> Um, we watched Ozark after that, which I think had surprising similarities, but coming from different perspectives. Um, we got into some really bad reality television shows like uh, Million Dollar Homes and, and Selling Sunset. <laughs> uh, and now I'm in a phase where we're watching Woke and we watch Black AF. So going from quality programming mm-hmm. to not so quality programming, but I kind of have an addictive personality. And so I love to binge watch. And I'm always looking for some show that has eight or so seasons that I could just spend weeks just getting myself lost in. Now, you're at a transportation company now, or movement company, I should say. If you could travel freely again and without worry, where would you go first? I love travel. Um, it's definitely one of the things that um, um, energizes me. I love, I just, I just, it's, it's the thing that I live for, really, that and food. And I think the two are so connected. Uh, I think a lot about Italy right now. Um, I'm going back to Italy. Uh, just such a beautiful place. And it's where my family's from. Um, it's just, I don't know, it just kind of feels kind of really warming and comforting. But the other thing is I'm turning 50 in a year. And one of my dreams has been to, to, on my 50th, to do something that pushes me physically. And so I've been looking at trips to the Himalayas or base camp of Everest, like taking some climb on to prove that I'm still able <laughs> to do that and to see a part of the world that, that I haven't been able to appreciate. Who would you like to listen to on the CMO podcast? I think you should have Lorraine Twohill on the CMO podcast. I don't know if you've had her. Um, Not yet. Inspiring person to, to, to hear from. 
and has been been through a lot of really interesting experiences. Um, I'm really inspired by the the CMO of Burger King and and the creativity that he's brought to, to that brand. Um, I use it as a, a lot as an example, particularly for Uber Eats, of just ways that you can show up that are still very kind of retail business oriented, but really have a voice and a point of view and kind of cut through. But he's also created a culture that I admire from everything I've heard of just inspiring creativity from everywhere and, and giving people an opportunity to take risks. Uh, we, this is Fernando Machado. We had him on early as a guest when I first started this podcast. We should bring him back because a couple other people have asked about him. And you are right. There's no one better at eliciting creativity from so many diverse people. He's just a He's marvelous at that, humble about it, and he invests in his own creativity. Yeah, I'd love to hear more about that. Any question for me before we wrap up, Thomas? What have you learned from doing these podcasts over the last six or seven months? And kind of what, what do you see branding and marketing going as a result of, of the pandemic and the way brands have showed up? Well, it's a great gift to do, the, to do this podcast, and I'm very serious about that. I enter so many interesting lives and get into their hearts and heads. So for me as a human being, it's incredibly energizing and inspiring. It's almost a hobby, right? And But the last six or seven months, there have been definite themes. And, and one is the importance of relationships and people. We always know that, but it's especially important now. And, and to be sensitive to what everyone's going through, uh, to keep people optimistic, not burned out, fresh, feeling cared for, cared about. Uh, that's a big theme. Uh, this idea of creativity in this crazy situation we're in and how many creative ideas are coming forward, ideas to be of service to people. And you're a great example of that. But, but I, I have seen that and heard that from so many different CMOs. And then I think the last one is uh, speed, agility, decision-making, focus. You know, there's no going back. So we will definitely come out of this changed in, in some very positive ways in the midst of all of this you know, sadness. Uh, and, but those are very, very strong themes from so many people coming through this, uh, this tough time. And, and frankly, it's been very inspiring to, be, to hear their stories. Yeah, those are great themes. They all resonate. Thank you for sharing. And thanks for having me. Thomas, thank you. It was great. Fantastic. Yeah. Good luck to you. Keep up the wonderful, inspiring work. Thank you. Hope to stay in touch. That was my conversation with Thomas Renice. This guy is so approachable, so grounded, so clear, such a nice human being. I can only imagine how great of a boss he is. The big lesson I got in this one was Thomas has been at Uber for one year and how they lifted their brand up to be more useful, to be of service to people in these times of stress and need and how the brand actually is stronger coming through this pandemic than it was before because they have deliberately and intentionally activated its purpose to help people in these strange times. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribe so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.